John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Entry 1195.SS0713, certificate number 31327, Spanish Fly. So throughout human history, there has been a desire for for desire. For desire. For an aphrodisiac, a pill or a tincture or a, a solution to... A tincture? A, a medicament? A medicament. A solution to either a lack of desire for sex or a lack of ability to perform or complete the sexual act. Is this different than kind of the traditional Greek or Shakespearean plot device of the love potion? You know, you, you give someone... Like, I think Midsummer Night's Dream is one of many plays where through magical or uh, apothecary means, someone is made to fall in love with someone at first sight. Is that what the uh, aphrodisiac is they have in mind? Or is that some separate thing? And then you would need a, you need a follow-up dose. Well, there, there are a couple of things trying to be addressed by an aphrodisiac. And one of the, one of the classical problems dating back to antiquity is the idea of male impotence. Uh, a lot of men throughout time sought a solution to either the fact that they they had no desire for sex or they couldn't complete the sex act because they couldn't maintain a tumescent posture. A firm... Uh... Gra- a grasp of the situation. A firm <laughs> handle on what was, uh, what was at hand. And so there have been a lot... And in, in fact, in 16th century France... Male impotence was actually a crime. Uh, what an embarrassing arrest! I know. Like, uh, do you have to go door to door and tell all your neighbors, "I'm a, <laughs> I'm a class C sex offender." See yeah. which one is that? Yeah, I couldn't actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm a uh, convicted impotent. This really never happens. <laughs> and I, it was often, I think, used in a time when divorce was not really uh, legal, a viable or, option. Well, divorce wasn't, but if you could prove that you're male spouse was impotent and then they could be convicted of that. Would couples kind of scheme then? Like, is that, is that their way out of marriage? I guess the, the, the man really has to take a hit for that. Yeah, like, he'd much he, rather be like, can't you just say I was unfaithful, honey? Yeah, but I don't think, un, I don't think lack of fidelity would have been enough to dissolve a marriage. Uh, the problem was at the time that uh, the way the veracity of the claim was tested was that the man was brought into court and stimulated by the court Whoa. Uh, like by the bailiff? I'm not exactly 100% Was sure. Was the gavel used in any way? I don't know, <laughs> but probably because it was shortly thereafter declared obscene to test a man this way in court. Uh, and I think it was shortly thereafter made no longer illegal to not be able to get an erection. I never saw Wapner try anything like this. No, by the time Judge Judy came around, this had fallen well out of fortune. So there's the problem, I think, that men have had of feeling that they were not up to the performance. But then I think women also have sought throughout history some kind of drug or potion that would make them more aroused, arousable and aroused. Well, it's often a woman trying to use it on the partner, I think, trying to make the man fall for them. 
yeah. you know, in fiction and, and drama. And I think this is true throughout history. It, it, it almost doesn't bear really elucidating because everybody that's been in a relationship probably has felt either an overwhelming attraction to their partner that wasn't reciprocated or a growing lack of interest in their partner where their partner's interest in them felt oppressive. Yeah, anyone who's ever been in high school understands the, if only I had some magic little vial that would make her notice me. Or, or make you know, him notice exactly. me. Exactly. Like, we ride the same bus every day, but he never crosses the aisle. And the overlap between love and sexual desire is true throughout literature, where there is the in most cases in Shakespeare and in all the great novels and songs, what you want is the person to fall in love with you. Are we supposed to read that as a stand-in for something a little squickier, like the the young Athenian lass just wants him to be horny? And I mean, uh, in literature, there was a lot of euphemistic use of the word love when, in right. fact, uh, they were talking about something else. It's kind of like uh, the famous sex scene in From Here to Eternity where they uh, are sort of wrestling with each other in the surf and then the camera pans off to the left and we're left to conclude. Or the, or the fireworks in, in Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief. Yeah. Uh, or, you know. Pan up to the fireworks. Why not? Often portrayed as a train going into a tunnel. <laughs> I was reading a, a, a treatise on dirty jokes for a book about comedy that I have coming out soon. No, and nice plug. The, uh, yeah, which will be available, I'm sure, for you know, from your local bookseller yeah. online well, or off. But to, that's not to, really to relevant be... to the story. The fact that it's, you know, only twenty four ninety nine in hardcover. <laughs> Look for it in airport bookstores. I almost don't even want to mention how much Kirkus Reviews and Booklist have recommended it. Yeah, tell me what was the title again? <laughs> it's called Planet Funny. But why is that even relevant to this anecdote I'm yeah. telling? Uh, so I'm just explaining why I was reading the 700-page treatise on the history of dirty jokes. Right, because ordinarily. that's the kind of work you put in <laughs> to every book you write. That's how just how much I love my reader. And the author was pointing out that if you watch many Hollywood comedies of the production code era, the jokes will always be scrupulously clean. But of course, the jokes being told on the corner tavern at the same time were not. Right. So you'll often see people saying things like, I was watching this Bob Hope comedy with Paulette Goddard. Some of those are very good, by the way. They're like haunted house uh, comedies. He tells her he's made a bet that he's got to tell the truth to everything that anybody says. And of course, his law firm is laughing behind his back and it's some kind of Jim Carrey type plot device. So they get him, they ask him uh, if he'd like to kiss this pretty girl, Paulette Goddard. And he bursts out, I'd like to kiss you till your ears fly off. And the author of this book made the point that the audience at the time would have not heard the word kiss they would have heard some kind of four-letter Anglo-Saxon word, you know, much, much rawer thing, cruder thing. And so that all these movies have these coded levels where the audience is well aware of what the real sure. plot device is. And what the, the gosh darn it. Right. What the, what, you, what the people are actually saying they'd like to do to each other. But it hurts a little to think that maybe Shakespeare was doing the same thing. Come on, man. Well, the, uh, I think post-sexual revolution in the United States, we have a tendency, like so often people have a kind of myopia of their own time in thinking that we are the most socially evolved or intellectually evolved humans to ever walk the planet. And all I have to do is read Plato to have this sudden dawning realization that Plato's very readable and speaks in a vernacular that's, you know, translated from the Greek. And, uh, and it's very true of Frank's sexual material too. Yeah. Because, you know, a certain generation that came of age in the 40s, 50s, and 60s where there was kind of an artificially clean veneer put on popular culture, you know, is in for a surprise if they start reading Aristophanes or Cervantes or uh, right. Rabelais, you I know. Mean, there's an awful lot of what feels like very contemporary language and thought. And people were not pre-sexual revolution, even in America, all necessarily waiting for marriage in order to experiment sexually. Well, there's uh, quite a bit of evidence that, um, you know, even in Puritan times, premarital, you know, just based on birth records and marriage records, you can see that the rate of premarital sex then is not that different than what you would see in our generation in the right. 20th century. Well, that's true when you look at genealogies, right? If you go back using just strict math, if you follow just the exponential growth of your forebears at a certain point, there would have to have been billions of people to just to produce the billions of people there are now if everybody had a, if there wasn't any overlap, let's say. <laughs> but 
this has been like a quest, I guess, throughout history for a love potion, for a, uh, something that you could give someone which would make, I think, you irresistible to them. Make them want you. And that is a, a pretty high standard to put on a drug because a drug is going to affect you kind of universally. And right. so- It seems like it'd be very hard- to train, yeah. you know, I got to find the neuron that only fires when she sees me. And this is often a plot device that they slip a love potion and then they plot that they're going to stand in front of that person when the love potion takes oh, right. effect. Shakespeare thought about this. It's yeah. the first person he sees. So, right. But then if something crazy happens, he sees a donkey or his sister or something. Yeah, like, right. Oh. He, he turns the wrong way and there's a different girl. And all of a sudden the plot of the thing turns upside down. As time has gone on, and we've had a greater understanding of hormones and of, of pharmacology. Now that we know how to make a hormone? Now that, oh, oh boy, is that from your comedy book? What? <laughs> is there? Is that an old joke with a punchline I'm not going to give here? Yeah, well, you know, just take the two syllables of that word and separate them into two separate I think, words. I think the old punchline is, don't uh, pay her. Uh, uh, so uh, there's long been, I think, an understanding that there is a tremendous placebo effect at work in using aphrodisiacs, both on oneself and on others. Well, sure. Think about all the things that people have just been convinced over the ages were an aphrodisiac, you know, like oysters, oysters. or snails or, and it seems in those cases like that, it's actually some resemblance to uh, some part of the anatomy and really not any effect they actually noticed when eating an oyster or a snail, because people would have realized, wait a second, I don't feel that different than before I ate the oysters. Yeah. There's some claim uh, that, well, and I think it's kind of, it follows, right, that eating an oyster is a fairly sensual experience compared to eating an apple. Although eating an apple did quite a job on Eve. <laughs> big uh, juicy apple, big bites. But an oyster, you know, it's it's very, there's a lot going compared on. Compared to a kale them. salad, yeah. for example. And, and other aphrodisiacs like champagne or chocolate. I mean, some of them, champagne just gets you drunk and alcohol is a, one of the number one aphrodisiacs. Uh, chocolate. Although it can have the opposite effect too, right? If you're interested in in potency, right? And the, and this is a thing that people are always trying to counteract, right? I mean, you get drunk and all of a sudden you want it more, but you're less able to follow through. Chocolate and cigarettes actually inhibit your um, ability is that to true? get aroused. Yeah, because it. Uh, so giving giving like fun size baby roosts at the start of the date doesn't work, and I've been doing this for years. It's not. So noticeable. It's a placebo effect, kind of almost. I mean, it doesn't help. Let's call it that. Uh, but we have recognized that there are things that do work as aphrodisiacs. Uh, testosterone given to both men and women increases sex drive. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a sex chemical. Uh, but testosterone, you know, there are a lot of side effects and you can't just go down to the Rite Aid and get a vial of testosterone. You got to go to the Russian Olympic Committee or something. Yeah. If you go, if you watch the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, they're taking hits off of a bottle of monkey adrenal fluid. Uh, but that's even harder to get <laughs> we, off of. We were just outside of Bakersfield <laughs> when the monkey spinal fluid kicked in. Uh, there, it, there's some research being done into a chemical called bremelanotide which is actually uh, kind of being demonstrated through clinical tests to be an effective aphrodisiac for both genders. But strangely, and I, uh, in reading the literature, I wasn't 100% able to discern why, but it was initially administered as an internasal drug. So you, you know- Oh, you, wow. You got to take a hit like you're- uh... Yeah, you did Dennis Hopper and a wow. This is what they chose, and I think it's because that's a that's a very sensitive mucous membrane. Gets in the circulation quicker. Uh, but unfortunately, with that application, it caused a high blood pressure, hypertension, and so they had to back off. And now they're working on it as a subcutaneous application. So you have to have a needle or something, uh, or I don't know. You don't want to like stick it under your fingernail. But, uh, but you have some of it under your skin and you have some time release app on your phone when you tell it how much brem, what's it called? Bremelanotide? It is a uh, bremelanotide. Yeah. That's my favorite part of the Christmas season. I love that. <laughs> I know. I love celebrating bremelanotide. Well, but, yeah, but you're orthodox. Right, so, <laughs> right, right. It's right. on a different day here in the West. I always, I always forget. 
Remelanotide is not yet available in stores, but they're working on a way to apply. And apparently, uh, subcutaneously, it doesn't create this high blood pressure problem. We're speaking to future generations that maybe have been born only because of the existence of bromelanotide. Yeah, sure. Well, the, the, the perpetuated life on Earth after the after the uh, singularity. The hundred nosed uh, koosh balls probably have no problem with the internasal application of of bromelanotide. Well, if they're tribbles, they're they're just going at it all the time right. anyway. They laugh at our need for bromelanotide to keep our... I mean, they probably think of it as some dead end of evolution that people ever needed outside pharmaceutical health to propagate the species. Well, they're sticking their noses into their fellows' noses, and they may be multiplying like spores. Proboscophilia. And also uh, methamphetamine. Oh. And to a lesser extent, cocaine are real, in a lot of cases perform as a real aphrodisiac and also as a performance enhancer. But uh, this podcast, there's a little disclaimer, this podcast does not recommend taking methamphetamine for any purpose. It causes your teeth to fall out. It makes you be able to march all the way into Poland. It is a bad, bad drug. But it seems like you're, you're mezzo mezzo on cocaine. Oh, uh, it's no, also a bad drug. Stay away from, <laughs> stay away from cocaine. Got uh, some good news for you, Patrick Bateman's out there. John is down on meth, but that's it. Do not take trucker speed of any kind. If someone gives you a crosstop, don't even take uh, caffeine. Without Benzedrin, we wouldn't have the Beatles. You know, those guys couldn't have played 18-hour sets in Hamburg without all kinds of crazy truck driver drugs. It's true. Well, and when you think about it. And I mean, we wouldn't have the financial collapse without cocaine. So think of all that these drugs have given us. I do. I think about it a lot. But this show is specifically about about Spanish fly. Tell us about Spanish fly, John. I, I feel like it's a, uh, I would have thought of it as a mythical drug, a schoolyard legend. Well, that's how it functions in pop culture, right? Yeah, that is how it functions in pop culture. And throughout the 70s, it was a pop, kind of a popular idea. If you, um, if you looked in the back of men's magazines or even popular mechanics, which I guess at the time qualified as a men's magazine. Popular mechanics, really? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to make a gender, a sweeping generalization about who reads popular mechanics. No, but I'm, I'm surprised by the idea that popular mechanics was interested in sexual mechanics just because they had a largely male subscriber base. Well, there was a lot of pseudoscience around sexual arousal, I don't, uh, androgen, and these ideas that you could... Uh, that there had been discovered a right. a way to extract pheromones and that these would make, uh, put on as a cologne. Put this cream under your armpit and you'll be irresistible Right, tonight. irresistible. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Spanish fly was uh, a love potion. Uh, the idea of it, that you could put a little Spanish fly in something and it would make you or, or make your intended fall in love with you. And it kind of uh, the popularity of the idea of it went along with the sexual revolution because the sexual revolution happened as a result of birth control. All of a sudden, with the sure. uh, with the pill, you could have sex without the normal danger. If we're using birth records as our marker of just how Puritan the Puritans were, <laughs> then, you know, we just got rid of the birth problem. We so. got rid, rid of the birth problem. And then immediately, or in the exact same moment, there was no fault divorce. So you could get divorced from your In the exact wife. same moment. Uh, pretty close, you know. The, the same guy inventing the diaphragm is like, <laughs> I have a second idea while I wait for the latex to set. You know what, <laughs> you know what would go nicely with this main course? <laughs> Uh, but the problem then was if you're someone who's living in the newly liberated 60s and you don't have to worry about suddenly being in a shotgun wedding, 
uh, you had the new problem, which was, how, am I attractive to people? Like, how do I take advantage of this? Right. This has never been an issue before. For the for the past centuries, you just had to be attractive once briefly when you were young to one person and your problems are solved. Right. You wooed them. But now with the, this awareness that everyone out there is having this fantastic orgiastic experience, probably promised you in, play, in the pages of Playboy. Yeah. How, how do I, John, how do I keep up? Well, maybe there's something called Spanish fly. And in fact, there is something called Spanish fly. That's Is, is it a fly from Spain? It is named after a fly from Spain. Whoa. Uh, which like, is... <laughs> I can't believe this is actually accurate. It's actually a beetle, and it's called... Uh, the scientific name is the Lita vesicatoria. It's a green beetle, and it's a member of what they call the meloid beetle or blister beetle family. What uh, what makes a blister beetle blister? Well, a blister beetle creates a chemical that is like a lot of animals or beasts, critters. It's thought of as an anti-predatory uh, solution. Oh, I see. It creates birds stay away from me because yeah, it creates this chemical that is a, a real burning agent. Some very caustic, a like, super, like a lie or something that it can super caustic chemical called secrete. Uh, cantharidin which is, yeah, it's a blistering agent that actually has a lot of medical uses. We use it now as, a, as an agent to burn off warts. Really? Uh, and it's actually used in tattoo removal. My podiatrist or dermatologist might give me Spanish fly? Might give you Spanish even fly. Even if he's not that into me? It's derived from, you know, they take these green beetles and they crush them up. And, uh, Very offensive if, we're, if green beetles are listening to us now. Sorry. That's true. Sorry well, for the mental picture John just provided you. Ho- hopefully they're but we either... Need, we really needed that tattoo gone. I am no longer dating a woman named Chelsea. It's got to go. I think in the future, the Spanish flies will be large enough and have so few predators that they may have <laughs> lost the this caustic. Nature. In the future, they're so large that you can actually milk them. We no longer have to crush them up. We've, we've domesticated the Spanish fly. Wouldn't and that be nice? You just go out to the barn and get a big, a big bucket of frothy cantharidin. And Spanish fly has been used for this purpose for many, many centuries. Um, By this purpose, do you mean it's it's medical stuff or? Well, so it was understood that these beetles were a, a blisterer for a long time. It's a chemical poison that can create real injury, including death. But it was also understood to be something of an aphrodisiac because the chemical that, that causes blistering in very small doses can be taken through the body, and, but it, it isn't processed by your gastric juices. It remains an irritant all the way through the process. Wherever in your body it is, it's causing... Um, inflammation. S- inflammation, Including in your urethra as it passes out. And in women, it's kind of an unnoticeable, externally unnoticeable swelling of their urethra. But in men, it creates a very strong sensation of burning and uh, excitement in your urethra as it passes through. And so I feel like we're conflating two different, very different kinds of excitement and uh, kind of waving our hands and saying, yeah, yeah, my urethra is burning. So well, but but I'm ready to go. Not burning. Like if you say, for instance, went to the men's room after eating a hot bowl of pho and forgot to wash your hands before handling yourself, that is a kind of burning. Seems like an increasingly unhypothetical story (laughs) for you, John. I don't know if you've ever taken any jalapeno peppers in your hand and then gone to the restroom. Yikes. That is a terrible kind of burning, but this is internal and it creates uh, stimulus. Let's call it that. Right. Well, we, I think in a past entry, we've talked about how strychnine, rat poison, was given in small doses to athletes as a stimulant. Right. And I assume it's the same kind of thing. You know, a, a little bit of this poison goes a long way. Yeah. And it was very hard to get an accurate dose of Spanish fly. Uh, in fact, Lucretius supposedly died of an overdose. Lucretius, of- some, some Roman... Uh, uh, the yeah, he's a poet and philosopher, Lucretius. You, or he was before he misdosed before a hot date. Yeah, you, you can read all about him in my upcoming book about all the great <laughs> Roman philosophers and Greeks who write in very, very readable contemporary language. Uh, there's no publishing date for that book yet, but you'll certainly hear about it. So you're telling listeners they should certainly buy mine first. Uh, go ahead and get Ken's. Go ahead and get Ken's. It'll be a nice amuse-bouche. It'll prepare your urethra. For John's 10-volume yeah. set of uh, the great Roman writers. So there's a lot of um, 
truth to the idea of there being a Spanish fly and it being used throughout history as a, a another one of these sort of medicaments that would give you an erection. But people didn't think of it differently from, uh, you know, for example, in the Bible, there's actually a story where people eat mandrakes. Uh, Rachel and Leah, the two wives of Jacob, are fighting over who's going to eat the mandrakes that night or who's going to use them, I guess, in their boudoir. Uh, you know, was Spanish fly just thought of as one of these kind of oysters, mandrakes, whatever kind of a preparation? Or did people know that it did something specific and physiologically you couldn't get somewhere else? No, I don't think you would take a blistering agent into your mouth unless you had some... Unless you had a plan. <laughs> ...pretty strong evidence that it was going to work. Uh, the difference being that in our era, Spanish fly is thought of as an aphrodisiac in the sense of taking a disinterested person or a um, ambivalent person and turning them into someone who desires sex. It was much more a male enhancement drug and seen as a way to get and prolong an erection. Okay, so p the people buying this in Popular Mechanics were not, and we're kind of getting into a skeevy area here, we're not trying to slip it to a, a date or a... Well, no, by the time Popular Mechanics came around, and listen, if you are the publisher or editor currently <laughs> or in the past of Popular Mechanics, we are not slurring you. This let, was just a... Let's make up a name of a 60s sounding men's magazine that we can say. Like, yeah, let's like, call it uh, Stag, although I'm sure that was a Yeah, magazine. although all the one-syllable words I'm thinking of... Yeah, Horn. Sw swank, I'm sure that's real. That was totally uh, a magazine, Swank. Uh, let's call it... Uh, let's call it... Uh, stag uh, is pretty good. That does sound like one in a, a, a prop in a movie. How about Moon Tube? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. From, our, from our past episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's call it Stag Magazine. By the time... Uh, those ads came around, there were a lot of imitation Spanish fly pills. Not a ton of uh, cantharidin was being, act I mean, green beetles were not being ground up and put into pills as much. Because this is a not regulated by any government aphrodisiac agency. No, you have to find these beetles and find people who are grinding them up and take the right dose and not die like Lucretius, but... Uh, I'm imagining a room full of women in their underwear, like in a TV version of a drug dealer's uh, <coughs> workshop, you know, and they're just, they've got a pestle and they've got right. green beetles, a bunch of beetles, gunk and a, everywhere. And a, a, a bunch of uh, really blistery fingers. <laughs> right. They're, I hope they have gloves. But during this era where there suddenly kind of was a social demand for, and this goes back, uh, obviously, to Shakespeare, as you say. But he called them filters, by the way, with a PH. That was the old-timey word for a love potion. A filter. Isn't that weird? You see it in the 1950s. You see it in kind of like darker literature of the period. But really, it was the 60s and 70s where this blew up. And Literally. Uh, <laughs> in the popular culture, Spanish fly became, as you're saying, a kind of... I won't call it a literary touchstone, but a cultural one. There have been... A meme, before a meme. there were memes. That's right. There have been three films called Spanish Fly. Really? One in 75, which was a British movie, Spanish Fly. Oh, I can imagine exactly the kind of gross yeah. British sex comedy Spanish with, fly. with the decolletage and the Ibiza. Uh, well, 75 would have been a little bit before then, but yeah, yeah, right. It would have been some secretary and somebody that looks like uh, lots of Benny Michael Hill, Caine. Lots of Benny Hill type jokes. And then in 85, there was a French film called Spanish Fly. Spanish Fly. Le Mosquette d'Espagne. Right. Or whatever. Uh, and then, uh, of course, in the United States, we didn't get around to our Spanish fly movie until 1983. We're so... Oh, I'm sorry, 1990? No, 2003. What am I saying? No, it's very recent. We're so prudish. Yeah. 30 years behind the French. Although there was a Van Halen song called Spanish Fly that came out early on in their career. It wasn't instrumental, but there have been... Oh, uh, so I don't get to ask you for your David Lee Roth no. impression. <laughs> there was a... <laughs> I can do David Lee Roth. Oh, that's good. Uh, there was a band called Spanish Fly. There's been an album called Spanish Fly. And of course, Van Halen did the Spanish Fly. What about song. Spanish Flea? The, uh, what is that? Herb Alpert? Is that a reference? No. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Oh, people would have heard that and been aware that it's kind of a wink wink. They understood immediately. And there's a, a Futurama episode called Spanish Fry. Uh, Fry, uh, Fry, the protagonist of Futurama. Isn't that good? But unfortunately, Spanish Fly came into... Uh, the consciousness also uh, due to its appearance on a famous Bill Cosby record. And now we get into the, the 
the really bad side of Spanish Fly, which was that Bill Cosby used it as a comedic device in his 1970s films. And this was during the heyday of Playboy magazine and... And people were, so people were just selling placebos and calling it Spanish fly. And and it it becomes kind of a shorthand for a certain kind of mythical love potion. Yeah, because part of how the sexual revolution was portrayed by Hugh Hefner and by the men's magazines like Stag and by people like uh, Bill Cosby was a world in which there were a lot of semi-clothed or naked, very young girls and a lot of middle-aged men standing around in tuxedos. And so there had to be some reason why these very young girls were sleeping or desired to sleep with these middle-aged guys. I feel like it's uh, not very flattering of them to invent a a pharmaceutical reason for the age difference in the grotto. Like, shouldn't Hef just be insisting that it's his uh, middle-aged wisdom or his, uh, I don't know, his tennis game? Or their wealth and power, right? Frank Sinatra married Mia Farrow at this point point in time and he was in his that's an age gap mid 40s and she was 19 yeah she's barely 20 right um well i think those guys probably for the most part uh did sort of try to get by on their tuxedo and their pinky ring and their charm but to the vast majority of american men who were freshly divorced (laughs) and wondering how in the hell to uh did not have a grotto no they didn't and so spanish fly was you know i think if they hung around a bar and and struck out enough times, they were looking for some solution to their problem. And Bill Cosby, in his own comedy, talks about it as a fascination he developed as a young teen uh, when he was 13 Oh, he's doing one old. of his childhood yeah. routines. <clears throat> you take and, the fly that is from Spain. Oh, boy. I was hoping we could get through this without you doing a Bill Cosby. A terrible book. Bill Cosby? But you just did uh, a comedy book. So why don't you, why don't you do a better Bill Cosby? I have never had a Bill Cosby impression. Nobody has a good Bill Cosby. I guess the closest I had was I, I had an impression of Mushmouth from, uh, <laughs> from Fat Albert. Which is Albert. <laughs> but we should explain for the benefit of future listeners, we're living in a very difficult time when for our generation, Bill Cosby kind of a, a comedy hero and a symbol of racial harmony in America yeah. was revealed to be a deeply horrible man. Well, and for revealed, decades, <clears throat> he revealed that he was doing this kind of, or he was seeking and also actively using various Spanish flies. Wait, this is the premise of his Spanish fly routine is that he's, is that he's dr- drugging women. Yeah. Uh, he, he was, hilarious. he was hilariously putting this stuff on albums in the sixties, 1969, not his breakthrough. He was already very famous, but he had an album called it's true. It's true where he had a whole section of the record and it was a live record, a whole section devoted to how he's, seeking and also utilizing Spanish fly, more seeking than using at the time. That is an interesting thing about the whole, how do we separate the artist from the art debate, which is that a lot of these artists didn't particularly care to separate the art from their personal uh, failings. And at the time, culturally, uh, the audience for this kind of routine thought it was hilarious. Not just thought it was hilarious, but all sort of understood and agreed that this was, I guess, a thing that not only was acceptable, but like was what you did if you were a man in the, in the, a middle-aged man in the world. Would it have been different had there been a wide knowledge of really effective, what we now call date rape drugs available? I mean, is, is part of this perpetuated by the fact that people aren't aware that this is something you could do? Well, there were. Uh, This was also, the 60s, coincided with a great increase in the amount of pharmaceutical drugs and drug, this was an era of drug development. So this was when quaaludes came on the market. Mm. This is when all, you know, black beauties and spinners and squeak and and uh i don't actually know which of these are crab claws and uh uh, banana hammocks i mean these were all available now and they did they were uh mother's little helpers were very popular as sedatives and recreational drugs oh so people were starting to use these for the same nefarious means we see today 
I mean, there's a lot of history of knockout drugs. The the famous Mickey Finn. Mickey Finn. But I, don't, I associate that with some mean bartender rolling you with his Irish buddies, not not any kind of uh, sexual conquest. Well, that is uh, that is where it comes from, right? A Chicago bartender who would dope you up and then steal all your pocket change. But he, the drug he was using in Mickey Finn was a drug called uh, chloral hydrate, mm. which is kind of still and in the 60s and 70s was used as one of uh, Bill Cosby's. Uh, he eventually discovered that there wasn't a Spanish fly, but that you could just slip barbiturates into somebody's drink and make them compliant or unconscious. There's a scene uh, not often reported and not told by Bill Cosby, but he and his co-star Robert Culp from of, I Spy. Of the television show I Spy. And we should say that part of Bill Cosby's, uh, part of his mythology or, or part of his career was he was the first black actor to be on mainstream television. A lead on a on a network show. And so he was famous in the 60s and, and, and a groundbreaker. And he was kind of, uh, maybe this is not age real, but he was one of the good ones. Yeah, you know, like right. he didn't even do bits about race. His comedy was all about universal stuff about his childhood and parenthood. And, and so like, he allowed a generation of Americans to feel very enlightened because they were fans of Bill Cosby. They owned a Bill Cosby record, even though he was a colored comedian. Well, and he was like OJ, he was beyond color. And so you could be a fan of his without fearing that he was going to say anything militant. It does seem that never ends well. If your only two examples of your post-racial celebrities are, are Cosby and OJ. I guess those aren't my only two examples, but two, uh, two bad examples. But he and Robert Culp actually went to Spain seeking... Spanish fly. Wait, is this an episode of the show? No, it's not. Although uh, it may have taken place, it certainly took place during the run of the show. It was a globetrotting kind of a show. I remember they were they were tennis they were uh, secret agents disguised as tennis pros. Well, that may have been on TV in Korea in the 1980s when you were a kid, but I, I never really got into eyes. <laughs> I actually did watch a lot of very delayed TV through the Armed Forces Television Network. I was a fan of Hogan's Heroes. Speaking of protagonists that ended up with questionable sexual histories. <laughs> right. And you get into the whole, like, how funny are Nazis question there, right, too. Right. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Um, but they, uh, I guess Robert Culp tells this story. They asked a Spanish cab driver if he could get them some Spanish fly, because that's where you always get Right, you're in Spain. Yeah. Don't, don't just uh, yeah. uh, fly to España. Well, you ask the cab drivers, right? They know everything. And he, the cab driver, uh, laughed and said, uh, did you bring over any American fly? <laughs> owned. Uh, the, and that's right. They were owned because, the, because his point was, no, there's no such thing as Spanish fly, you dummies. Is it like, you know, Spanish rice is from Mexico. Spanish omelet, I think, is not particularly Spanish. I don't think you can get French dips in France. Exactly. It's one of these uh, uh, demonymic misnomers. That's a future entry. Demonymic misnomers <laughs> on the omnibus. <laughs> but Bill Cosby and I think a lot of, uh, well, and a portion of the more nefarious Spanish fly seekers did move on to just drugging people with uh, quaaludes, which were uh, a very popular, briefly popular sedative. It was, uh, they only really came on the market in 1962 and they were outlawed by 1985. Quickly found to be unsafe. Partly for this very reason. People because got- Because of the drugging stuff? Addicted to quaaludes and also they were used nefariously. Yeah, now, unlike chloral hydrate, uh, quaaludes had 
had a really, really sketchy history through this period. Uh, chloral hydrate was considered a, a class four controlled substance in the United States, and you can't really get it anymore. It was sometimes used as a sedative for dentists. In the United Kingdom, chloral hydrate isn't even considered a controlled substance. It's just a snack. You have, you have a few of those with your, with your tea and your scones. Yeah, it's used as a treatment for insomnia in the UK, and you can get it as a prescription in Canada and, and fairly easily. British fly, that's what I call it. British fly. Uh, but quaaludes became very popular. In fact, in the United Kingdom... Uh, quaaludes were knighted by their, the queen. Their nickname was Mandrakes. Ah, just like Rachel and Leah. Yeah. I guess there's some cultural memory of Mandrakes being the old way to, um, to get her interested. Yeah, that was, their, that was their nickname. So quaaludes actually have a very dark history and play a, a very dark role in the history of South Africa and the former, what they call the frontline states, uh, Mozambique, Angola, Zambia, uh, former British colonies. There was, during the apartheid years, something called Project Coast, which was an attempt to use chemical weapons within South Africa on its own population. On, I assume on black population. On its black, on its increasingly restless and un discontent population. Disenfranchised black areas. Uh, and a man called Dr. Wouter Basson, who obviously has, a, has an Afrikaans name. Great mad scientist name. Um, he used... Quaaludes as a crowd control device actually Wait, what? added it into tear gas and attempted to use it to control mass movements of crowds. Um, Does, do quaaludes work when respirated? Uh, the tests for this were, I mean, the he actually used this stuff yeah, on I mean, crowds. And the great thing about South Africa is you don't have to test it. Yeah. Like, you test it on real people. He, and this was, you know, during also a time when Saddam Hussein was working on his, uh, he did have a chemical weapons program. It's just not the one that precipitated the war uh, that we instigated. He had different weapons of different kinds of destruction. Well, and most of them were long, long, long gone. But he was experimenting in the, and he had a relationship with Wouter Basson. Oh, really? I mean, there's an axis of quaaludes. They understood th they were following one another's work. Um, <laughs> Mutual fans. Dr. Basson actually ended up uh, at one point, he was held for a while by police in Croatia carrying $40 million in Vatican bearer bonds, which he was using in an attempt to procure, to purchase. 500 kilos of quaaludes. This is during the apartheid era. He was sent out on this mission to yeah. get... Like, how are we going to get this stuff? You know, like, take these Vatican bearer bonds, which sounds like the plot to Die Hard. <laughs> uh, like, who uses bearer bonds anymore? It was a real 80s thing. Yeah, I don't have a lot of experience buying <coughs> quaaludes for white South Africa in the 80s, but that sounds like the perfect instrument. But huge quantities of quaalude powder were taken to South Africa. And then during the dissolution of uh, the white apartheid era, these drugs disappeared into circulation. Hmm. And you still will find quaaludes available, like coming out of the Southern African drug stockpile. It's the last stash. Yeah. Now we're living in a world where we recognize that Bill Cosby was not only nefarious, but also had not found a mysterious love potion. He had found, in fact, tranquilizers and was using them as a, a rape element. Uh, that popularized the idea that there was a widespread use and widespread dissemination of what we call date rape drugs, like uh, Rohypnol and uh, GHB. There are several of these. I'm sure you've heard of them. GHWB, the, the George Herbert Walker Bush the drug. The George Herbert Walker Bush drug, which, uh, which... It's kind of an anti... Look, it causes you to read people's lips. <laughs> not not want to kiss them. Uh, and so, and, and in our culture now, there is a sense that these drugs are widespread and are being used frequently to create this intoxication, this state of in incapacitation. It's an interesting sequel to the, the Spanish fly cult of the 60s, whereby this thing that barely existed and, you know, just gave you a, an owie urethra yeah. had this whole 
mystique built up around it. And now you don't, uh, especially in reading um, contemporary accounts of date rape drugs, there is very little talk about them being utilized to create a love potion effect. And it's much more like, uh, you know, people's drinks are getting dosed and then they're waking up unconscious. I guess that is progress. We're romanticizing rape less. (laughs) I would, I'm glad we finally advanced. Now, strangely, and I think this is true often in uh, situations like this where you have a cultural moment, uh, the actual toxicology reports of situations where date rape drugs are suspected produce results that are inconclusive and in a lot of cases find very little evidence that uh, rohypnol or GHB or any of these drugs are actually being used this way in most. It's difficult to nail down because GHB and rohypnol can be metabolized fairly quickly. Yeah. But But yeah, when there are studies, it sure is hard to find an epidemic. And that, you know, I mean, that we've seen and have even investigated in our own show, lots of instances, we haven't investigated lots yet, but certainly they're on our list. Lots of instances where there will be a cultural moment for a thing like lacing your pot with PCP, where you go through a period where it seems like everybody was smoking pot that was laced with PCP. And then you think about it a little bit more and it's, it's pretty hard to get PCP and it's also expensive. You're not more expensive gonna, than weed. You're not just going to put it for free on people's weed. Like you can't even get guacamole without it being extra. There's yeah. no way you're getting free PCP somewhere. And rohypnol is is pretty hard to get a hold of itself. And uh, and chloral hydrate, at least in the United States, even more so. And we've talked about uh, in a past entry the fact that these hysteria can sometimes be self-fulfilling, though. Right. You know, that uh, actual poisonings did result from rumored trick-or-treat poisonings, for example. Right. Uh, so there could be some downsides to creating a disproportionate hysteria around a specific kind of uh, attack there are if it's disproportionate there are a lot and in the case of sexual uh, drugs that excite sexual energy there's a huge placebo effect in all directions if you believe you've been dosed you're much more likely to feel dosed if you yeah I mean if, and less nefariously if you think the oysters are gonna work maybe they're gonna work right and retroactively, it's a lot, you know, if you wake up from having had alcohol poisoning, it's easy to, you know, a- apply a, some nefarious agent when actually alcohol is an awfully good poison all by itself. Pretty good at doing that. And the other problem that Spanish Fly sought to address, which was impotence, which was never exactly the best word for it, impotence just from the Latin meaning unpowerful. Uh, which isn't quite descriptive, quite exactly descriptive of not being able to get it up. It definitely encourages the continuing male identification of sexual yeah. potency with with their with uh, any kind of power, right? Weapons, car size, uh, skyscraper design. <laughs> uh, but now we call it a erectile dysfunction, and there, very recently in our own time, only since 1998, has there been a uh, an effective pharmaceutical treatment for erectile dysfunction, which is a real medical condition where you cannot have an erection, uh, but also is a perceived medical condition or a emotional medical condition, which is not that you're incapable of uh, having an erection, but incapable of sustaining it, or you don't have one that uh, fits your self-image, or it's not as fun for you. And this is not a placebo. Viagra, unlike Spanish fly, actually solves both problems. It does. Viagra and then uh, then a couple of drugs that followed in its wake, Levitra and Cialis, all sort of use different chemical pathways to create an opening in your blood flow. And <laughs> I'll take your word for it, John. I don't... No, no, no. I don't, I know, know, I don't know much about any of this. I know you wouldn't uh, dally. But these drugs have now for the most part, provided a, an effective way of dealing with this millennia-old problem of... For half of us, at least. Yeah, and these drugs are not really shown to work similarly with, uh, with women. Cialis of the three may be most likely, and it, is, it also works with hypertension. Um, it's a hypertension drug, and I think Viagra can be used to recover from 
jet lag. I mean, there are other applications. Really? Uh, young people now have started taking Viagra recreationally as a, not because they suffer from uh, erectile dysfunction, but just because they, it's like they combine it with MDMA and it's like off to the races. I think that may even be their way of describing it. They, off, say, they say off to the races. They, 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 like, they like old-timey equestrian <laughs> metaphors at their raves? Yeah, they, uh, because, you know, everybody knows that, uh, that the favorite movie of all, of all ravers is uh, The Entertainer. Or no, The, uh, <laughs> the Sting? The Sting, right. They're like, <laughs> off to the races! We love Scott Joplin music at our raves. Uh, and I think uh, women have largely found that in their desire to have a love potion that creates excitement in a man, Viagra is also pretty effective. Uh, there's not a ton of documentation on whether, on all of the probably tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of women who have found that their husband's discovery of Viagra is only a massive inconvenience to them. Uh, <laughs> but there is a solution if you're trying to take a, an ambivalent man or an in incapacitated man and turn him into uh, Casanova. And you don't have a, a pestle and a jar of beetles handy. Right. Uh, in terms of being able to inflame the passions of an ambivalent woman, I'm afraid that we still have only oysters. And? Champagne. And Speedos. And that concludes Spanish Fly. Entry 1195.SS0713, certificate number 31327, in the omnibus. Futurelings, we hope you have escaped the scourge of social media. In our day, we loved it. We couldn't get enough of it. Absolutely prisoners of it. It was the South African quaaludes of our day. It is, it is really a terrible crowd control device. <laughs> uh, but we were at Omnibus Project on Twitter, Instagram, and even the now discredited Facebook. John was at John Roderick on Twitter and Instagram. Super hilarious. Great over there. I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. Slightly less hilarious, but... You're uh, so funny. You're funny enough to write a book on comedy. Look at that. Compliment fishing works. Uh, and we love to interact with listeners via email at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com, as well as the fan group Omnibus Futurelings on Facebook for the next few weeks or however long Facebook survives. Um, from our vantage point in what would be called the dying years of the Facebook era, which isn't really an era, it was only five years. The before times. These, these guys all live in, you know, the year 8,000 AF after Facebook. But we know, uh, we know that podcasting will survive because we are doing a great podcast and people will carry this in an arc. You may be future... Harrison Ford's discovering this ark in the crumbled remains of an Egyptian temple. I was picturing Noah's Ark, but you're picturing like a, a Raiders of the Lost Ark ark. An ark that contains the ark of the covenant, I but it's see. our covenant with the future. So remember, don't our, look at it. And our Ten Commandments are ten crushed beetles. I don't know what the, what our what our actual legacy is. More than Ten Commandments. Like the, the other arc only had Ten Commandments. This, this will have... Oh, you're just, talking about the Apocrypha. This will have hundreds of entries. Yeah. Well, it's going to have the, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene in it. <laughs> so your, your, your contention is that this will be scripture to future listeners. This, oh. will, this will be a religious text, not just a, uh, not just a valuable scientific document. Listen, That's I interesting. Don't, I don't swear on this program very often, but I'm going to say, F*** yeah. And I say it in that octave up skater way. David Lee Roth. They just censored it both times, so people still don't know what you're saying. Nobody nobody heard what word that actually was. Everybody knows, beep, yeah, it's the F word. Um, if Facebook decides to take us all down with them, if they set off their doomsday device, this, like dollar recordings, may be the last. But we hope and pray that that day will never come. And we'll be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>